Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gabia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. So this week, we watched director Ajneska Holland's 1993 adaptation of the classic children's novel The Secret Garden, originally published in 1911. The film follows young orphan Mary Lennox as she returns to England from colonial India and moves into her mysterious uncle's dreary mansion, ultimately befriending servant boy Dickon and her bedridden cousin Colin. So this is a Patreon request from Nicole, and I want to extend my sincere thanks. We obviously are grateful to all of our Patreon requests, but this was a complete trip to me to watch because I was obsessed with this movie as a small child, watched it countless, countless times. We had it on VHS tape, and um, I had not seen it in between 20 and 25 years, I would say. And so watching it, I was like physically transported back to my childhood home watching, like remembering watching this film, like certain shots. I was like, oh yes, I remember this one. And it was just a wonderful experience. So I'm feeling very positive going yes. into this discussion. <laughs> Me too. I, I loved this film. I hadn't seen it before. When I was in the correct age range to be watching The Secret Garden, I didn't really have access to movies, but I did read the book, I think probably many times, because while watching this, like it's such a kind of close adaptation that I kept remembering scenes, like it was all coming back to me. Clearly a lot of attention to detail paid there. Just a really wonderful children's movie of a type that I've not seen in many years, I think. Very old school. What it reminded me of, though I think this is a better film, is the 1970s children's film that we did an episode on a couple years ago, The Black Stallion. Uh-huh. Which is similarly, I think, set in the 19th century and shot really beautifully. And again, I think this is a more successful film like as a whole, but both movies are made with incredible attention to detail on a craft level, which we will talk about with regards to this one. And just like take children seriously as an audience and as subjects. And, you know, I don't want to go on and on about this, but it's just hard not to be like, they do not make movies like this anymore <laughs> at all. And indeed, there was well, a Well, the great- thing is that, like, they do, because if you listen to last week's top 10 episode, I mentioned uh, the new Celine Sciamma film, which is about a pair of eight-year-olds and is suitable for eight-year-olds, but it's like a, but, a French art film. So it's Yeah, like that is not a movie for children, in quotes. Children might enjoy yeah. it, but that was not being marketed but like as a that, children's that, film. Exa- well, that's kind of precisely my point, because it's like, that tonally reminded me of films like this very much. And... You know, these days, it's all bright lights and fast-moving shapes. Honestly, Morgan, no respect for art. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there was an interview with Kate Maberly, who is the actor who plays the main character, Barry, in this film, who now works as, like, a screenwriter and does producing and various sort of film-related things um, in Vulture a couple years ago. And she was saying, like, you know, I just rewatched this and they just don't remake they don't make movies like this anymore. And she apparently still gets mail from like young girls who are obsessed with the movie and like think that she is Mary Lennox. And so send her letters, which was very charming to think about. But um, it was interesting to me to think about me being obsessed with this because I 
always think of myself as someone who basically only watched animated films as a child, which is true. Like, my parents were very strict about what we were allowed to watch, and so we pretty much only watched Disney films. I always think about the Disney film Remember the Titans as the one that, like, my best friend in elementary school and I were really obsessed with as, like, the first movie with real people that we were like, ooh. But this obviously was before that, and it's sort of, like, so deep in my brain that it almost doesn't count. And I had no conception of any of the context historically for, like, anything that was going on here. I didn't know anything about the history. And I don't mean, like, the, like there's imperial stuff going on that we'll talk about. But even, like, England and, like, servants. <laughs> and, like, I mean, I knew that England existed. But, like, I just can't even imagine what I would have thought was going on. But obviously I got it, right? And, like, there's just a power to the film that you don't have to have any context to, like, understand. Yeah. The, the level of, like, emotional sincerity and all of the plant symbolism and just all of the feelings the kids have. I mean, I was completely embedded in classic English children's literature at that age. Like, I was an extremely voracious reader as a child, and I was reading all those books that were kind of late 19th, early 20th century. So Francis Hodgson Burnett and Edith Nesbitt, and basically all of those books that are about, like, you know, tragic little orphan children or, you know, even sort of Enid Blyton stuff. It's very sort of English and it's, I don't know, there's there's a lot going on politically with these books and some of them are like better than others in that regard, but it's kind of interesting how much of that world just feels instinctively understandable to me, unlike you as an American. Well, this is the thing though, is that I feel like it was instinctively understandable to me, but I don't think I could have like articulated that. The little girl in a dusty mansion with servants and like myst- a mysterious boy. Trope. <laughs> well, maybe this is just like your brain is just so attuned to Victorian Gothic literature that you were like, I'm made for this. At the age of eight, you were like, I've got what I want and I'm staying here for the next 20 years. <laughs> it was so funny watching this. I was like, of course, this is what I was obsessed with as like a five-year-old, right? Like, <laughs> makes sense. I explains mean, everything. Books, it, basically, every book for children is about a tragic orphan being horribly tormented that's like every book <laughs> well right i mean it's an irresistible trope right like i feel like even children with basically happy families as soon as you take the parents away the kids yeah. are like great love it give me more <laughs> right like you just it, you can't go wrong but this one is particularly appealing and interesting i think because the orphan in question is really obnoxious like she's a brat and i think a lot of books or films that have this trope really make the kids into saints. Yeah, because the little princess is kind of the opposite of this. Like, she is like a perfect little darling. And this kid is like a horrible asshole. And not only is she a horrible asshole, she's really sympathetic because you completely understand why she got there parenting-wise, because the literal first scenes of the movie are like, A, she's like part of this extremely rich white family who are part of like the colonization process in India. So she's being waited on hand and foot by these Indian servants. And also her parents just don't give a shit about her. Like her mom's always going to parties. Her dad's in the military. She's essentially a neglected child who like doesn't have love or appreciation in her life and has been raised to be a rude, horrible little monster. And then she's immediately traumatized because she loses her family and then has to move to a completely different country with strangers. So it's like, of course she's terrible. And it it just feels like really psychologically switched on, you know? 
Yes. And as the child, as a child watching this, you're of course going to be instinctually sympathetic to her because you identify with her because you were also a child. And she's just inherently likable despite being a brat. Like the child performance is so emotionally available that you sort of get it. And she becomes kind of spunky and like she part of the brattiness also comes across in her being like, well, I don't want to deal with all these silly conventions. And you're like, yeah, I wouldn't want to deal with that either. Like, of course. It all just works really well, I think. And the movie's just, like, beautiful and smart. I mean, I don't know if we've mentioned it yet, but, like, Roger Deakins shot this movie. When his name came up in the credits, I was like, what? Like, what? like one of the greatest living cinematographers. And the film does look absolutely beautiful. Yeah, I mean, again... I just kept thinking, so I was obsessively watching a movie shot by Roger Deakins all about, like, Victorian misery when I was, <laughs> All like, about five. people, like, with like, horrible, mysterious diseases being locked up in attics. And, <laughs> yeah. and there's a fantastic, creepy dad. But yeah, as, as the resident Victoriana expert, would you like to teach the audience and also me about Frances Hodgson Burnett? Yes. So a lot of this is just being pulled from Wikipedia because she's not a figure whom I have a lot of pre-existing knowledge about. I bet a biography of this woman would be fascinating. Clearly she lived a life because she's a person who was back and forth between America and the UK for basically her entire life, which is pretty unusual at this period because obviously travel, like I was transatlantic about to say, travel is transatlantic quite difficult. boats, not good. <laughs> Right. So she's born in Manchester, England, to a pretty well-to-do family in 1849, but her father then dies in 1853 of a stroke. So she's only, what, like four years old, and leaves the family without an income. So obviously they're not from, like, gentry. They must, I assume, are from some kind of manufacturing family, which goes back to our episode on North and South about how Manchester is really, like, the hub of industry in England at this period. And this also was interesting to me because I just finished reading um, this novel by George Gissing, which is from around 50 years after this period, from the right at the end of the century, called The Odd Women. And I'm so happy to get an opportunity to plug it because I fucking loved this book. But it's basically all about the idea of like the odd women in society, right? Who don't have the opportunity to marry, but aren't like working class. They don't really have any skills to like make money and then what's going to happen to these sort of like lower middle class women who have just enough education that they kind of feel like they're above doing work but then don't have any money and this became a real problem in the late 19th century because there were way more women than men in the population and so obviously they couldn't all get married and what happened to Frances Hodge and Burnett's family is a real example of that which is that like as when the man dies like, all of a sudden your money's cut off and you're just totally screwed, especially if there are a bunch of children, as there were in this case. So they kind of struggle along for a while, but they really do not have any money. And they wind up moving to Knoxville, Tennessee, where her mother had family. In 1865, which people will perhaps, you know, remember is the end of the Civil War. So Knoxville, Tennessee is also totally economically decimated at this point, right? And her family there, which was it was her mother's brother, I think, doesn't really have the means to support them either. 
So she starts writing for pay in 1868 and basically is just a hack writer at the beginning of her career. Like she's frantically just churning out anything that she can so that she can support herself because nobody has any money in her family. And she does quite well. And she gets married to a doctor in 1872. Um, She's writing sort of sensation novels for adults at this time. She doesn't become known as a children's novelist until pretty late in her career. And she has a couple of kids there's a lot of detail on the Wikipedia page about her going to Paris to buy her trousseau for her wedding and being like really dissatisfied because like the seamstresses did not make the right fancy garments for her. And it appears that she sort of had persistent money issues throughout her life because she really liked to buy stuff, including lots of fancy clothes, which, you know, who among us, etc., etc. So her big break is in 1884 with Little Lord Fauntleroy, which is when she sort of breaks out as a children's book writer. She moves back to England a few years later, and her older son dies in 1890, which I think probably informs some of The Secret Garden, which obviously has quite a serious tone in a lot of ways. She gets divorced in 1898, and is, again, in this period, just going back and forth between America and England a lot, which... I find really fascinating. This was not typical at all. Briefly remarries in 1900 at the age of 50, which is also very unusual. And it seems like her friends sort of were in agreement that this guy was just out to sort of get her money. And very quickly, she gets out of that marriage. And then A Little Princess is published in 1905. And The Secret Garden is published in 1911. And she died in the 1920s. So she had a very eventful life and published a ton of books in this period it's just that um the three that are really remembered now are those three children's books and i would say that two that probably anyone is still reading are a little princess in the secret garden yeah little lord fauntleroy is basically a punchline although i think yes. i did read that as a child and i don't yeah. remember liking it no i don't think it's really aged well though i don't know very much about it at all but In terms of like the background of children's literature at this time, I think we spoke about this in more detail when we were talking about Little Women. So I will link to that in the show notes. I think I did some reading about that at that time. Like boys literature was really popular in the Victorian era. And you had a lot of like boys own story magazines, sort of Mm -hmm. periodicals that were really geared at boys, adventure fiction, all of this stuff, very imperialist toned not even a tone like it was a explicitly that was what was going on and girls fiction i think kind of takes a little bit longer to take off and little women is kind of like the pioneering text in that genre i think i remember us talking about the fact like it kind of just didn't exist and so the editor like louise malcott's editor kind of suggested that she write it and she just thought it was this stupid thing and obviously it winds up being hugely popular but once girls fiction really does get going, it's way more about like imparting a moral message to the girls reading it, of course, because of gender. But this is the foundational period for books about little orphan girls, horse girl books, and ballet books. Yeah, but I think that The Secret Garden, based purely on the film, because I haven't read the book, although as you say, it seems quite close, a quite close adaptation, and Agnieszka Holland did not write the screenplay, but she directed the adaptation and she was obsessed with the book as a child. So it's pretty close adaptation. 
is both participating in that tradition of like moralizing, like the main character has to kind of learn to be a better person and everyone around her also kind of has to get over their, their moral problems. Right. But it doesn't have the same level of like, you have to learn how to sew and just be a good girl and like do the right things and then it will all be fine. Right. It's also, yeah, it's not like a story where it's like, oh, she's horrible. And then she becomes like a lovely little angel. It's like, She's traumatized and being horrible is a symptom of that. And also like as soon as she figures out something nice to do, which is plant things with your friends, it's basically about her getting therapy and then like helping others. But in 1905. (laughs) Well, there was an article a couple years ago on the Paris Reviews blog by Frankie Thomas that I thought was great about reading this book, pointing out that like the first half of the book is basically totally in Mary's head. And then in the second half, it really expands to have the points of view of not only Colin, her cousin, and we'll get more into the plot shortly, but all of these other characters, the servants, her uncle, there's a chapter from the point of view of a Robin in the garden. Oh my and goodness. Then, well, I have no memory of that. That's delightful. Yeah. I love it. Get a bit experimental. Right. And it clearly like the point is that she's completely depressed and self-absorbed in the first half of the book when she first arrives. And then the book is kind of making this argument for community, right? By shifting the way it's being written, which I think is really interesting and clever. And the film kind of does that too. Also, just one more thing about the sort of Victorian angle before we move on to the movie more. It is manifestly apparent, and I believe Frances Hodgson Burnett said this herself, that this is explicitly inspired by Jane Eyre. Like anyone who has read Jane Eyre (laughs) will know that this is obviously, like I think she described it as like Jane Eyre for kids. And that's what the story is. There, this feeling of like arriving at this sort of like remote, desolate manner and like you don't quite belong. And then there's like someone hidden somewhere. I have to say Yorkshire does not come off well in the popular culture of Britain. Like we have done episodes on Wuthering Heights and what's the sexy man who owns a cotton mill book? Oh, North and South. Which I have already mentioned (laughs) on this episode. Yeah. So this is a very gothic story and it is really dark which we will talk about in a way that is pretty uncompromised it's a book and film for children but like it's pretty fucked up in a way that holland doesn't shy away from at all and i'm sure that was part of what was appealing to me as a kid like i liked really dark stuff and i think that there's a desire among a lot of people in charge of media and also uh, education in America right now to like purge all children's literature and media of that stuff because like they don't want to corrupt them. But like kids are really morbid and just want, yeah, just want to know the truth. want to read a book about a child having Munchausen's by proxy. And honestly, like the two main kids in this have so many scenes where they're just like screaming in impotent rage. And it's like, yeah, that probably is a really great thing to be watching when you're eight because you do a lot of screaming in impotent rage when you're eight. (laughs) Right, exactly. It's a key part of childhood, really. Oh, man. Yeah. So let's move on to the actual film. Yeah. Which was directed very improbably at the time by Agnieszka Holland. 
This is the only film I've seen of hers, which having like, read all of her a bit other films her, are really serious. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's produced by Francis Ford Coppola, which is amazing. It's just like very funny to read. There was an interview with the main little girl, Kate Maberly in Vulture, that we will talk about a bit more later, where she kind of talks about the audition process for this film, where she was not a child actor. She was not even that interested in, in acting, but like they cast a really wide net among just normal kids to find someone who had the right vibe and clearly they recognized that she was really talented but it was like she was like auditioning for Francis Ford Coppola and obviously she was eight so she like didn't know who he was whereas her dad was like oh my god (laughs) Um, so it's like they've got like real heavy hitters here obviously the director Francis Roger Deakins and the composer for this movie is like the music for this movie is incredible which I bet is like part of the reason why it lodges in everyone's memory because that's always one of the things that like gets people kind of sentimentally but it's a Polish composer named I'm probably gonna pronounce this incorrectly but Zbigniew Preissner who is known for the Three Colors trilogy which is like very serious like literary cinema and I've only watched one of those, which is Three Colors Blue. I watched this film because it's like partially about a composer and it's got like a musical element. And he created a sort of in-universe like fake composer who has this entire other like musical style. Incredibly talented musical writer, this guy. And for this movie, he's just done this like whole symphony of like different instrumental themes for all these characters and stuff and it's really simple like children's movie music but it's also incredibly high quality and I was just like well done you really covered all the bases of this film it looks gorgeous it sounds gorgeous the child actors are doing a fantastic job <laughs> this is like you know art cinema for little children <laughs> yeah so Holland I, I was reading about her and I was like I'm embarrassed I have not seen more films by this woman and now I really want to and she's still going like she had a film out like, yeah. last year in her 70s. Yeah. So she was born in Warsaw in 1948, and her father was a communist and died by suicide when she was 13, and her mother was involved in the resistance during the war, and I would imagine her father was as well. And so she, even though she was born after the war, the war is clearly, like, the major influential thing on her life. Like, most of her really famous films have to do with the Holocaust, some of which are Europa, Europa, To Kill a Priest, and Olivier, Olivier. And uh, I don't know what any of them are about specifically because I have not watched them. But when she was 13, I think, she was really sick and, like, bedridden for a really long period of time. She was talking about this in an interview also on Vulture with Bilga Abiri, and... He and I were like totally fascinated by this because on the one hand, this movie feels, and especially I think felt at the time because she's done a wider range of things since, but like it was completely bizarre that she was making this movie in 1993, but obviously it has an incredibly high level of personal significance to her. And she says it probably is her most personal film, even though it doesn't necessarily seem that way on the surface. And then just another couple of biographical details. So she's from Poland, and this is when, obviously, the Soviets were in power. And she studied at the film school in Prague, which was, like, an incredible hub of creative energy and talent in the 60s. So she was hugely influenced by the Czech New Wave cinema of that time, which is, like, a passion of mine. So I was, I was very excited say, by that. I was going to say, am I not right in thinking that if you go to Morgan's Letterboxd, you'll be able to find a little list of Czech New Wave recommendations yep. or something? <laughs> Correct. You can ask me for details if you would like. 
But while she was there, like, she was taught by Milos Forman, who obviously is one of, like, the great Czech and American directors. And then she was there for the Prague Spring in 1968 and witnessed that. And gives a long and really interesting answer that I won't read out loud because it's long. But, like, I highly recommend this interview. It was just really interesting about how, like, she wasn't really thinking about feminism in terms of, like, her being discriminated against because she was a woman until she got to America. Because... In Poland, like, the problem was the regime, right? Like, it really was not the prime concern that, like, they were being mean to women who wanted to make films. Like, no one could make a film that was speaking any kind of truth to what was going on politically. So she just seems completely fascinating as a person. And again, like, not who you would expect to be making this movie, but... I think she's kind of perfect for it, both because she has, like, she loved the book growing up. She had this personal experience of being ill, but also she's able to make the film in a way that, like, doesn't dilute the parts of it that are really beautiful and joyous. Well, but she's the able to take it, are, it seriously, you know. Right. The The dark stuff is not papered over, right? Like, she she does take it seriously. And, like, the kids are taken totally seriously, which I think is why kids like it so much. Right? Like, you're not being spoken down to. Exactly. So shall I kind of jog listeners' memories about what actually happens in this story? Yes. Um, (laughs) So as we said, the main character, Mary Lennox, grew up in India and then her parents die and she moves into this terrifying gothic pile in the middle of Yorkshire. And she's like really bored and has nothing to do and doesn't really know how to do anything. And so... She kind of starts off by exploring the garden where she finds the titular secret garden, which is this walled off area where the Lord of the Manor's wife used to have a swing and she just hang out there, but she died. So it's been walled off very symbolically. And she becomes enraptured by this, like it becomes her secret place. And she shows a little boy who's like a son of the servants and knows how nature works. And he helps her start to plant this garden. And his name's Dickon. He's one of the three main children. The other child is Colin, who is the son of the house. And we don't really meet him for the first like third of the movie at all. You just hear sort of distant screams in the house. Very gothic. (laughs) And uh, as it turns out, he has been kept in his room in bed for pretty much all of his life. He can't walk. He's um, moved around in a wheelchair when he moves. And he's got some unexplained illness. You know, they think he's paralyzed, but it's not really clear what's going on. He's been absolutely convinced by everyone around him that he's going to die. And Maggie Smith plays the woman who's sort of in charge of this, who's this very strict, classic Maggie Smith character. And it's all very early 20th century, late Victorian vibes. He's very pale. He's not allowed to go outdoors or be in the sun because he'll like inhale dangerous spores from the outdoor air and stuff, which is like very against the idea that outdoor air is meant to be good for you. Uh, But he's generally living a miserable existence and his father is clearly so fucked up after losing his wife. He's just like convinced himself that his son's going to die any second and just sulks very melodramatically in the background. They've got a kind of minor British character actor named John Lynch is playing him and he's absolutely wonderful. He's got this mane of raven hair and he sort of looms in very... I was just like, God, this is a fucking great sad dad role. Fantastic casting. 
But Mary obviously finds Colin and because she's an argumentative little monster, basically grinds him down by being like, well, what are you doing? Like, honestly, you can't be that sick if you're able to have arguments with me. If I was told that I was going to die all the time, I just wouldn't do it. And I was like, God, love this kid. So she and Dickon kind of take him down to the garden. And the final third of the movie is basically he's kind of being nursed back to health. Like it turns out he's not paralyzed. He is able to walk if he was, if he's given more exercise and he just learns how to have fun and be healthy. And that's kind of the end of the story. And it doesn't come across as like a sort of offensive narrative about someone being disabled and then getting magically cured by the power of love or whatever. Cause it's pretty explicit that what was wrong with him was that adults in his life had like told him that he was really sick and it fucked him up. Yeah. I mean, this kid's dad kept him in the fucking basement and didn't go talk to him for 10 years. Yeah. That's pretty bad. You should not do that. And they're like giving him electric shock treatments to get his legs to work and stuff. And it's like, he can walk. (laughs) You're just not letting him. You've given him a visceral terror of going outdoors. It's really, really twisted. And all of them have to wear like a medical mask going in. And there's a very funny you know, now bit where Mary's like, I won't wear a mask. It's ridiculous. It's just so oppressive to my face. And I was like, anti-masker Mary Lennox. Um, Yeah, it's immediately taking on a very different tone specifically now. But of course, it's completely absurd, right? Like, there's nothing wrong with this kid. It's just that he's been locked up in basically this, like, prison of the basement for his entire life and has these unbelievable tantrums whenever he's upset because he has not been taught to interact like a normal human with any person, right? Like the only way he knows how to get attention is to just scream. Yeah. Because he has no parents functionally and all he does is interact with the servants who are like, you're going to die soon. Yeah. The ideal person to bring him out of his shell is obviously another spoiled little brat, but the class stuff is really interesting because... You've got these two kids who, the reason why they're like that is because their parents are privileged enough to neglect their kids in this really specific way where it's like these children's needs are like technically being met and they are technically authority figures in the class structure, but also they're receiving no love or nurturing or like lessons in how to be a human being. Whereas the two kids that initially help out Mary are Dickon, the garden boy, and Dickens' older sister, who's one of the housemaids, um, who kind of is the first person to befriend her, so who I, I suppose is probably meant to be like 14 or 15 or something. And she's just this like lovely, very practical kid who just is very cheerful and has no patience for Mary's hysteria. But I was also just thinking like, yeah, these kids are like really nice and practical and chill. And like narratively speaking, it's like, oh, you've got these commoners who are there to help them out. But it's also like, if you grew up that way, like the only, you, you are living as part of society. Like the only way to function is to have a bunch of life skills and know how to work as part of the community. Cause like you are part of the community of servants. There's like dozens of people working in this house who all have to work together. And like Mary just has never experienced that. Like she doesn't know how to dress herself. She can't do anything. The bit about her dressing herself definitely was part of my fascination with this as a child. Like it's yeah. so alien to you, right? Yeah. Like how... I think the class stuff of this movie is really interesting, as is the treatment of imperialism, which we will get to in a moment. So the little kid actor who plays Colin is named Hayden Prowse, and he is, I think, the best of the three kids. He's fantastic. He is so good at being this just, like, absolute sniveling brat, 
but also he like he's very funny. He's the funniest of the three of them, I think. I mean, he went on to be a comedian. All three of yeah. these kids kind of did more acting, like Dickon did a bit less. Kate Maberly has had a very varied career because clearly, I mean, you don't want to be like, oh, this kid's a child prodigy. It's like clearly she had parents who were extremely encouraging and had the means to like encourage all her talents, but she's a concert pianist, is now directing movies and stuff, clearly very skilled. And this other guy, like Hayden Prowse, he does sort of political satire pranks and stuff he's like someone who does comedy but it's like his own comedy so it seems like he does have a brain yes but he also really conveys the like genuine terror this child has of everything he is sincerely terrified of like the outdoors and of people and everything but also really wants to get to know this girl, right? Because he's so desperate for anyone to talk to him. Like, I think that character is probably the most well-drawn in the movie. I mean, she's also wonderful, but like, he's just so unusual. Like, you don't see He also this, looks right? like, perfect. Like, he truly yes. is like a little, like the Draco Malfoy prototype is really in action here. Mm-hmm. And whoever was doing the makeup, they do some absolutely fantastic, pale, miserable child makeup on both him and Kate Maberly. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he looks like he has not ever seen the sun. Like, which I'm sure is partially makeup and partially just that his complexion was that he was just incredibly pale. They do make him like that here in Britain. (laughs) Yep. But then you have Dickon, who is played, we should say, by uh, Andrew Knott, who I think is perfectly fine. Like, he's very charming and natural in front of the camera, which I think is no mean feat for anyone, but especially kids who are like... I think very easily just get kind of nervous and not know what to do. He's very cute. But (laughs) this character, I just kept thinking like, so what does he really think about these two rich spoiled brats who like his whole job is just to like make them feel better? Like it's really not ideal. His older sister, Martha, who is played very charmingly by Laura Crossley, who has no Wikipedia page. So I assume she just went on to have a normal life, which good for her is way more distinct as a character and is also, I think it's a very good performance. Which is also kind of odd because like in terms of the the image we have of The Secret Garden, Dickon is like a really prominent character and I like remember yeah. that character from the book, but it's sort of, he's sort of the character that people have a crush on in the book, like eight-year-old girl. Yes, <laughs> of course, because he knows how to do stuff. The animals all follow him around and he can like speak to them. If you're like an eight-year-old girl, someone who can tame a deer is like, that is the most attractive thing that like the, the best quality. <laughs> Absolutely. And again, like this kid is like very charming. He just doesn't have, it's so apparent that the two rich kids have like actual arcs and he does not, right? Like he just is there to He's exist. just like a nice lad who's like, would you like to learn about seeds? <laughs> yes. Although he all, he does have an amazing moment where he just straight up unhesitatingly eats a bug, which I thought was very <laughs> metal. And the two of them are like, what the fuck? Um, so that was good. But on the other hand, I think Maggie Smith, who obviously is always incredible, but I think the writing for her is really, really good. And I don't think we have mentioned that the screenwriter is um, Caroline Thompson, who had written screenplays previous to this for um, Edward Scissorhands and the Addams Family, which is amazing. Very gothic. Love it. Love it. But Maggie Smith, I think, is really fascinating because this is the kind of character who, in a less good story, would just be like an evil witch, right? Who's like being nasty 
to the plucky heroine and just is horrible to her. I do. She does threaten to box her ears a lot, and that was definitely something that scared me as a child. And she doesn't actually do it on screen, but I think I asked my parents, like, what does that mean? And they described it to me, and that obviously was like, that traumatized me enough that, like, I was waiting for it the whole movie. But she's not nice, but the movie is very careful to make you understand why she is behaving in the way that she does. And it's not that she just is mean. It's that she is incredibly stressed out about her unbelievably demanding job. And that she is also genuinely terrified that this little kid is going to die. Yeah. Because she has been told that he's very ill. Yeah, I mean, she's been told that, like, he will die if he meets the outdoor air. And she is the person who's in charge of creating the quarantine infrastructure while the man of the house is basically off being fucked up somewhere. He just goes to different locations and broods. Like, he'll go to his men's club in London and just brood for two weeks. And then he'll come home and he'll brood in the study for a while. And occasionally, secretly visit his son in the middle of the night with a gas lamp and not say hi. So, so like, of course, Maggie Smith has taken all of this upon herself. And because she is an old, strict Victorian woman who's used to striding around with a big thing of keys in her belt... She's dealt with this in a rather authoritarian fashion, but you're right. Like she doesn't seem like a monster and it's a really good Maggie Smith character. It's sort of a quintessential type of role for her where it's like someone who's really strict, but also has like, there's a, you know, there is like a humanity going on there. Yeah. And I think that's really important because I think that in a lot of films like this, the servants just don't get any personality at all they're just kind of window dressing, right? Like they don't really have dialogue or they're presented completely as characters. And that's also not really helpful. And in this, she's clearly a real person. And that felt to me like it was for the adults, right? Like not that the kids couldn't get anything from that, but they were clearly like, we're going to give a Maggie Smith performance to the grownups <laughs> in the audience, right? And I was also very amused by, you mentioned um, the guy who plays the uncle, John Lynch, who's like very hot in this movie. He's in it for like five <laughs> minutes. And I was like, they cast him for the moms. Like, good job. He is very hot and he's very troubled, but he's also, I was like laughing at him every time he showed up because he oh, yeah. clearly is just like such a fucking drama queen. And it's like, yeah, your wife has died, but it's like 1905. Everyone's wife has died. Like everyone is constantly surrounded by death right now and everyone else is also dealing with it better than you and you have a child to raise. <laughs> like you fucked up this kid. Well, I think one of the interesting things about the movie is that he's obviously a figure who like has completely fucked up this situation pretty much irreparably. But the movie doesn't really explicitly say that. And I think that part of what's so successful about the film is that there is a lot of stuff that you can interpret yourself that the filmmakers do not actually yeah. state. Totally, you can get that happy ending from the ending because the ending is obviously like, oh, like, you know, they hug the father's, you know, cured. His yeah. misery and all of his psychological problems are gone. But it's like, you know, you can have that ending. But at the same time, like that relationship is fucked up forever. But that's, like, too dark for the type of story that you tell to an eight-year-old. Right. And the stuff with the servants, I mean, the stuff with, like, Dickett, I think, is just a flaw of the story, right? But all the stuff with Maggie Smith is just very subtly done. Yeah. And it's not being laid out very clearly. And then the other thing, I want to talk about the imperialism. 
one more minute. But first, like, the gothic is basically, like, as a genre, the manifestation of these traumas or, like, bad, unspeakable feelings, right? And so you literally have the kid who's been locked up in the basement and been made to become the avatar of, like, this man's grief by becoming an illness, like the manifestation of an illness that doesn't exist. And then on the other hand, the garden, which becomes this haven of like beauty and regrowth for these children. And obviously none of that is explicitly stated because that's just how like themes work, but it's going to get into your brain anyway, right? Like as a child and it's simultaneously really explicit and not directly spoken, which I think, again, is part of what is so appealing about the film. But the Imperial stuff, I think, is really fascinating because this girl is coming from India where her she was living with her parents. And I feel like if this, oh, well, this movie was remade quite recently and I have not seen it. Yeah, I mean, I keep thinking about that. It's a clearly terrible movie. It's written yeah. by Jack Thorne, which is always a horrible sign. But I just remember seeing the trailers for it. and It was like they've got this sort of CGI luminous, brightly colored fake garden. And when I kind of looked it up after watching this 90s film they have Colin Firth as the uncle and it's like they just went down a list of like who's a British actor who can be avuncular and it's like Colin Firth is like a hundred years old he's meant to be like the dad of a 10 year old he's 60 something (laughs) yeah I just couldn't engage with that at all clearly appalling depressing but I would be fascinated to know how this the colonization stuff is is handled in that because the way it's handled in this film would absolutely never happen now Mm mm-hmm but I think it's. Pretty I mean, in the new one, interesting. I think they have more non-white characters. Like for they've cast Dickon is a British Asian actor. Like it's the kid from his mm-hmm. Dark Materials. Yeah. So it's like no longer all about white people. But then you've got the non-white character as the servant who teaches right. them. Like, is, <laughs> like you know, that's bad. I do not support that at all. But what I like about this film is that. And like, I'm not saying that this is the necessarily the best way to do this or the only way to do this, or that like. I mean, this is obviously the issue with, like, adapting stuff from this period is that obviously you're going to run into problems. But I think that, especially with, like, very recent adaptations, there is a tendency to overcorrect. And by that, I don't mean to, like, do creative things with real history. So, like, Lady Macbeth, for instance, from a few years ago was a film that we both really loved that has, like, prominent black characters another as, like, fantastic servants, Yorkshire right? movie highly recommended yep. and like they are playing servants but in a way that's like historically realistic and they're given subjectivity in the movie like the people who made that movie had clearly and they're, thought about they're that really meaty narrative roles yes so like that kind of thing obviously is like, great I would love to see so much more of that but I think people are so sort of like nervous about dealing with anything that's potentially tricky subject matter that there's a tendency to overcorrect and ascribe our current belief system or like value system to the past when of course that is not how the past worked because it was in the past so what i really like about this movie and like this is stuff that you would just never pick up on as a child because you have no comprehension of like any of this stuff is that this young girl is growing up in India, clearly miserable because the empire is bad. That's what the movie is really saying, but it doesn't come out explicitly and say that. 
And then the fact that England slash the United Kingdom is an imperial state is sort of threaded through the movie in a way that is clearly just part of the characters' lives. And it's quite ambivalent. But, like, that is absolutely how these people would have spoken and existed. And I think it's, you have to be very careful because obviously you don't want to, like, propagate anything that's going to be damaging. But I think the movie walks a very, very careful line with that in what is obviously an intentional way, like, this director is coming from. Yeah, it's from, like the director like, is extremely state, politically informed right? and it was raised in a household with, like, a communist activist, so... But I just found that so much more sophisticated than you would ever see in a children's film now, or indeed many adult films. Yeah, I mean, and most it- British historical dramas are not, like, clued in. They're all about the class no. system, but in a way that's just, like, so shallow and, like, weirdly nostalgic. And so, like, her parents die right at the beginning, and she's in their room, and, like, they're in a, at a party, and... You don't see what happens. Like, all of a sudden, stuff is shaking and there's fire and she's, like, under the bed. And this gets described in all the reviews and everything as an earthquake, which obviously is how, like, I would have interpreted it as a child. But I, of course, was thinking, like, you don't actually see what happens. Well, this is the thing, right? Because I was, when I saw that scene, I was like, I assumed that they were being attacked. And then when she gets off the boat, there is a piece of voiceover dialogue that says, oh, all the earthquake victims this way. And I was like, that is ADR. Like, this director definitely had that as an attack when she filmed it. And then someone, I bet, a producer was like, please have it that they're earthquake victims. And they put it in, like, the voiceover. Yeah, that was absolutely my interpretation, too. Is that, like, of course there's an anti-British movement in India at this time. And, like, I don't know enough about the history to know exactly about the sort of, like, anti-colonial violence that was happening. But, like, clearly that is what she's intending. But I think even with that ADR, it's still sort of in the movie in some way yeah i mean in the book it was cholera because i learned what cholera was from reading the book (laughs) yeah which also adds something to the story that i think is lost a little bit in the film although i really like this sort of ambivalent ambiguous question of like what happened to her parents because of course the whole book is the whole story is so concerned with illness and disease, right? And this, like, paranoia over this kid's health when, in fact, he's totally fine. And I think the ideas of, like, the pure body and, like, masculinity, right, are also a big part of this. But this kid is being completely emasculated by not being allowed to ever leave his bed in the pursuit of this sort of impossible purity, to, like, avoid the spores, which don't exist, right? But, like, cholera adds a level of context to that that makes that behavior a little bit more logical, even though it's still obviously completely absurd to do that to your child. Like, you could kind of grasp that a little bit more. But I could also understand not wanting to, like, get into the historical detail of that. Yeah. It did make me curious about the novel. Which, as I said, I've never read. Whenever something, especially something for children, lasts this long, there's usually something, like, potent going on, right? Yeah, I just remember loving it. There were so many books of that type in my childhood. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I read Jane Eyre when I was 13, and I was obsessed with it, but that's a bit older, obviously. 
Yeah, I think I was reading some Dickenses, which did not stick in my memory. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, the only other thing to say, I guess, is to talk a little bit more about Deacons. I just think this movie is shot so beautifully. Deacons does himself doesn't shoot on film anymore. He only does digital. But the quality of the film stock is so rich. It's just so like gorgeous when... She first arrives in England, obviously, it's all very grey. And when she first gets a sight of this garden, the colour palette is so gorgeous because kind of the, the point of like the narrative of the movie is the seasons change as, you know, the garden flourishes. So like when she first finds the garden, it's the end of winter and there's like the first shoots of some snowdrops are coming up, but it's all kind of dead leaves. And it's this wonderful sort of grey and russet brown palette that mixes in with her morning clothes, but she's got this little sort of reddish brown hat. <laughs> it's really cute. I was actually watching this movie like, maybe I should get a pinafore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, really, really fit with my normal style. Oh, yeah. But, like, it's filmed in such a beautiful way. And I did kind of look up to see if Roger Deakins had ever done an interview about this. Like, I couldn't find anything in particular, but he did say that, like, a lot of it was filmed just on sound stages. So I think they made like the gardens like indoors somewhere, but obviously there's loads of really amazing exterior shots of the the tragic Gothic house and lots of Yorkshire moorlands. But also just like the interiors when they have shots of people going around with gas lamps and that sort of thing. It's so warm and beautifully lit. And he captures the like Gothic ominous feeling of that basement and going down to the basement incredibly well. There's a bit where, like, late at night, as you mentioned, this father going down to see his son while he's asleep, there's a shot of him it, going down he, the stairs. He's in an attic. He's upstairs. When you see them, like, pulling the windows down, and, like, when he oh, comes yeah. down, his wheelchair is, like, at the top of the stairs. They aren't taking that wheelchair all the way down a bunch of the stairs, though. But you see him at the top of the stairs. I think I think we must both be wrong, and I think he must just be on the first floor somewhere. He's definitely upstairs, because I saw this film two hours ago. <laughs> <laughs> but you see the dad go downstairs to see him anyway. In this shot that I'm thinking of, you get this, like, incredibly intense shadows through the, like, poles on the sides of the staircase that just has this feeling of, like, Ooh, like, so this is spooky. And then the, like, quality of the darkness in those scenes. I think this is what a lot of current cinematographers are really bad at. It's digital is so bad at getting blacks, right? And you get that so well in this movie. And very charmingly in that interview with Kate Maberly, who plays Mary, she clearly had a really lovely experience on this, and they shot it over the course of an entire year to get all the seasons, so it... And obviously there are laws about like how much filming child actors can do. So it doesn't seem like it was like massively strenuous, which I'm sure also helped a lot in terms of like it not being too onerous on the kids. But she speaks very highly of Holland. But then Rachel Handler, who's doing the interview, asks if she was particularly close to anyone else on set. And she and Andy Knott, who played Dickon, were really close friends. And then she says, and actually, I must have been a total pain in his ass or total pain in his butt, excuse me, sorry, to Kay Maberly. Roger Deakins, I literally hung on to him. I was obsessed with the camera. Most kids between takes, you want them to go away and play or do schoolwork, but I just follow him around. He taught me how to load the film, the 35 millimeter. He'd let me look through the lens, check the gate. He was brilliant. I loved being around him and the camera, which is just like- That's so oh. cute. And now she's a filmmaker. 
Love it. That's it's beautiful. Amazing. <laughs> it just makes me so happy. I mean, he hosts a podcast with his wife that I've listened to a few episodes of, and he is clearly just like such a chill, just a lovely man. Man, a yep. lovely, incredibly talented old man with amazing hair. <laughs> yes. Oh, makes me very happy. So yeah, this film was such a joy to revisit. And whether or not you were obsessed with it as a child or have never seen it, highly recommended. Yeah, I would recommend just watching this film. A nice G-rated movie about tragic children. (laughs) Yeah, just aesthetically alone. Gorgeous. So thank you so much again to Nicole. This was a huge pleasure and I am so glad that I rewatched it. So next week we are going to be watching the Peter Bogdanovich film, What's Up, Doc?, which neither of us has ever seen. I mean, I can't believe I've never seen this film because I love romantic comedies, and this is, like, one of the classics of the genre. I mean, you cannot go wrong with Streisand. No. No, indeed. So we're going to do that next week, and the week following, we will be watching In the Heat of the Night. We thought that it would be nice to do a Peter Bogdanovich and a Sidney Poitier film, given that they both died recently and were such sort of titans of Hollywood. And I mean, Bogdanovich in particular did so much sort of work on film history. And then Poitier is just like such a legend. We've done one film of his, but it's a pretty like niche one. Obviously in the heat of the night (laughs) is is the biggie. I've seen that one before. I think it's really good and interesting. So that will be the next two weeks. And then we'll get back to some listener requests after that. But you can do some homework beforehand if you want to keep up with those films. We're really excited about talking about them. And if you would like to support the show or request a film of your own for us to talk about, you could do that at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. We would also greatly appreciate a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps with visibility. And Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my writing at The Daily Dot, and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me at bustle.com and on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is overinvestedpodcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.